1 Corinthians chapter 8 um, is sorting through how to handle the topic of food that is sacrificed to idols. I may have told a section right down in here that I was going to refer to uh, food sacrificed to idols as horn frogs this morning, uh, but I was told I would get punched, so I'm not going to do that, okay? Um, if you don't know, I'm a Michigan fan. They're TCU fans. I'm not going to look there, so I don't get anything thrown this way, but nonetheless, okay, so... Here's the deal. Paul's working through, and he's talking about food that's sacrificed to idols. And this is something that is obviously not at all uh, culturally relevant uh, today um, in the same context, but it's something that weighed heavily on the believers of that time. And so what we saw is Paul began that whole discussion by shifting the focus away from what their question was and putting it on something else entirely. He put the spotlight, instead of on the food itself, he put it on loving one another. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul begins this discussion by saying, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about food sacrificed to idols. And he goes on to point out that idols are really nothing. Therefore, if a particular meat or food was sacrificed to an idol, it was in essence sacrificed to nothing. That was the idea that was there. And so he says, if someone has a, a strong conviction about that, this, don't cause them to stumble but instead, you know, show grace to them. Don't, don't eat it right in front of them. Don't guilt them into doing it as well. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to talk about his right as an apostle. And what we saw was something very similar, that though he had the right to do a number of things, what he says in chapter 9, verse 19, he says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Once again, he, he shifts the focus. Instead of focusing on the different things that he was able to do because he had the right to do them, he focuses on something greater. He focuses on caring for those who he was around, who God had placed him uh, in, in the neighborhood of. He was caring for his neighbors and, and hoping that people would understand the gospel. He says, in fact, in chapter 9, verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And then at the end of chapter 9 and going into what Pastor Brad led us through last week in chapter 10, what we saw was he urged the believers then to remember the history of God's people. And inside of that, he said God's people had a history of being focused on God and pursuing God, loving God, and going after him. And then what they would do is they would pursue these false gods. They would go after idols. And for a few generations, they would go astray, and then eventually God would have grace upon them, and he would call them back to himself, and they would go back to, uh, to him and repent. Now, inside of that, we ended last week in verses 14 through 22 with a reminder 
that the important thing, once again, is not about food sacrificed to idols, but about not worshiping those idols, not worshiping those false gods. Now, it's with this that's fresh in mind that Paul goes on to really give a little bit of a recap of all of this. And to those who were saying they could eat these meats, he repeats a slogan that he had previously brought up. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Paul says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now, it is unclear where this slogan or this mantra came from, where they're saying, I have the right to do anything. Some people believe it came from what Paul had previously taught them because he was working through his um, newfound rights uh, to be free from uh, certain aspects of the law. Some people felt it came from uh, pagan worship. Uh, Regardless, clearly it was a saying that the Corinthians were used to, they knew well, and so Paul is, is stating it here as a way to to help them understand, listen, you're saying that you are free to do basically whatever pleases you. And as Paul begins to end this discussion, and and really, if you look at what's next in in chapter 11, you see that, that he's setting the table for the discussion that is to come about head coverings. He basically says in verse 23, just because you have the right to do something doesn't always make it right to do it. If you were with us in our study of, uh, throughout our study of 1 Corinthians, you, you would have possibly remembered our study of chapter 6. This saying was brought up then. Flip back to 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 12, for just a moment. This is what he says there, and it's just a little bit different. Paul says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but catch this part, but I will not be mastered by anything. The first half of this verse is identically the same as what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, but the second half has a different focus. In chapter 6, he says, you may have the right to do anything, but you should not be mastered by anything. Okay, So it's an individual thing. You should not be mastered by any sin that, that you feel you have the right to do something. It means that you shouldn't become mastered by this. But here in chapter 10, Paul shifts a little bit. He changes the focus once more to being constructive. Again, I have the right to do anything, verse 23, but not everything is constructive. This term that's being used here for being constructive is the same term that we use in the New Testament to edify. And most of the time that it's used, it's, it's not talking about edifying yourself, it's talking about edifying the body, it's talking about edifying others. It, it has this idea of building people up and encouraging them. That's the picture that he's painting here. The focus is on other people, not on oneself. That is why verse 24 in chapter 10 says, no one should seek their own good, 
but the good of others. Now, when you take verses 23 and 24 and you add them together, what we're really seeing here is that just because you have the, the, the right to do anything doesn't always mean you should, but the right thing to do is to always care for one another, is to always build one another up. That is always the right thing to do. And as you consider this, this principle that Paul is conveying, that, that some people have the right to do something, but it doesn't mean they always should if they aren't caring or building up those around them. If I had to guess, many of us in this room right now, we have examples of different times where people could do that and different times that that has happened to us, whether it's from our experience in church where we look at it and say, yep, somebody had the right to do this, but by them doing it, it hurt me or at work or at school or in your job or whatever it is. If I had to guess, we, we all have different examples of this, and it's hard because when we look at it, again, if I had to guess, those examples are when someone else took advantage of their right to do something, and it ended up hurting us, right? We look at that, and we see that, and, and then we don't really look at the times that we do it to other people, because the truth is, when we do it to other people, we feel that we're justified in it. And so we, we, we put Bible verses around it, and we say things like that. But the, one example of this, I, I think, is, is very much seen in the way that we lead, okay? Whether it's leadership in, in, in your employment, or at home or in the church or wherever it is, we often look at leaders and say, okay, just because you have the right to do this doesn't mean that you should. This has negatively impacted me. But then when we're in that position, we feel justified in doing it. Okay, so we have to be careful when we're in those positions. For the, for the Corinthians, some of them were most likely overdoing their right. Okay? Uh, again, that, that, it's a totally different situation. I understand that. The, their situation was with food sacrifice to idols. We're now talking about a handful of different things that it could look like. But, but some of them were most likely using their right to do whatever they wanted to do. And they were probably doing it at times that they did not need to do it, okay? They were probably eating in front of people, uh, making them feel uncomfortable and, and more focused on fulfilling their right to do what they wanted to do instead of how it impacted those around them negatively. And so Paul told them, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. We're taught this principle all throughout Scripture. If you go, if you want to flip over to Philippians chapter 2, Paul told the church in Philippi, the first four verses say this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and in mind. And catch this next part. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, 
but each of you to the interests of others. And then Paul went on to talk about Christ and how Christ was in the same nature God, and yet he humbled himself. He didn't take advantage of his rights as God. He humbled himself and became a servant, willing to die on a cross. James challenged the believers in James chapter 4, saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, you desire something, but you don't have it, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you, you fight. And he goes on to, to admonish them and tell them, you're not receiving the things that you're asking for in prayer because you're praying with selfish motives. With these things in mind, consider again the situation in Corinth. Paul's addressing the division that took place there really on a number of levels. As you go back to chapter 1 and work all the way through chapter 10, there was so much division that was going on and taking place inside the church on a lot of different, in a lot of different areas. And a lot of it was division that could have been resolved if what we see in chapter 10, verse 24, was lived out, that they not look for their own interests, but look out for the good of others. Instead, a number of them were insisting on getting their way and getting what they wanted to do. And as a result, there was fighting and there was quarreling, just like the word says there will be. That's what was taking place there. In so many ways, um, this is like elementary school, okay? It, it sounds like what I've experienced with my children when they were younger. But the truth is, it's not just with little kids, it's with adults as well. And we do this inside the church a lot, but we're smart enough to put Bible verses with it. And that proves that we're right in saying what we think is right. We have to be very, very careful about this. Again, just because we're right doesn't make it right to do it a certain way. I have the right to do it, you say, but is it beneficial? Is it constructive to others in the church, in your family, in your, uh, your place of employment, at your school, in your neighborhood? Is it constructive there? If they and we, as, as God's people, um, really actively looked out for the needs of other people, we would demonstrate God's love a lot more in this world than we do uh, right now. And it's even amidst God's people that we have a warped view of this because we so often look out for ourselves. And this starts with you and I individually. Now, I, I do understand that there has to be a balance with this because what we're talking about here is we need to look out for the interests of others. They need to look out for the interests of us. And, and then we're about to go into uh, verses 29 and 30, uh, where we're going to head is, is talking about how our conscience shouldn't be dictated by other people. So there, there is a balance to be had here. But to the Corinthians, Paul went on in, in verses 25 and 26, and this is what he said in regard to their division over meat sacrificed to idols. Look at verse 25. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So Paul's point here is don't question that which is ultimately from God. So Paul is, is telling them as believers, 
they did not need to go into the market anymore and, and raise questions about the religious history of the meat that they were purchasing. Like I was thinking about this this week in, in our context about what it would be if you walked into, you know, whatever your favorite burger place is and you, you, you go to order and you say, okay, just a second, before I order, what's the religious history of this meat that, that's going on here? Like most employees would look at you and just have no idea whatsoever what you're even talking about, okay? But this was common practice for them. As God's people, they were used to questioning that. They wanted to make sure that what they were putting in them was holy and pure and clean and all of that. And so Paul is saying, you no longer need to do this. They're, they're being set free from this practice. And Paul made clear that much of the reason for that is seen in verse 26. They don't need to question it because ultimately everything belongs to the Lord. It's ultimately from him. So even if this object, this piece of meat had been sacrificed to an idol, the, the truth is that idol is nothing and everything belongs to God. Therefore, that meat was ultimately from him. And so instead of focusing on what could have happened to it, what we need to do is focus, what they needed to do was focus on the one who was providing it, the one who it was Okay? It was God's, he created it, it's his, and that's what Paul is trying to point out to them. And then Paul went on and he gives some instruction on what to do if an unbeliever invited them to a meal. Look at verse 27 in your Bibles. It says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Think about that for just a moment. Like, well, why do you think this is that Paul's instructing this? Well, why is he saying, hey, you, you don't need to do this in the meat market, and if somebody invites you to their home, you, you don't need to do this? Paul, Paul had been clear to them that they should not be engaging in idol worship or worship of demons with their, their unbelieving uh, acquaintances, but... Clearly here, in, in the context of, of a social meeting and a social gathering for a meal, he's saying ultimately that God wants his people to engage the unbeliever, but to do so in a way that doesn't establish ultimately this almost form of superiority to have a reason to look down upon them. If you go back to the verses that we just read, 25 and 26, I, I have to believe, again, this is part of the reason that he didn't want them going into the meat market and, and asking them about the history of the meat. If you could imagine them asking and saying, hey, what, what, what's the background of this? And they said, yeah, this was sacrificed to this idol, this false god. And, and ultimately, the, the now Christian says, you know what? I don't want anything to do with that. It, it kind of establishes this moral superiority, if you will, over them. And, and though it is good to take a stand with, with God's design on moral things, clearly here, Paul did not see this as a hill to die on. Not every hill is a hill to die on. And so he's saying this is not that important. We don't need to make people feel beneath us because of this specific 
topic. In the same way, God is teaching through Paul here that he desires his people to engage those who, who do not believe without demeaning them in their acts of hospitality. All right? Somebody's going to bring a meal out to you and, and be hospitable in that way. You, you don't need to push them down and, and insult them because of it. Paul's saying, don't worship idols with them, but if they give you a piece of meat that was sacrificed to an idol, thank them for their hospitality and enjoy it with them. That's what Paul's instructing here. Now, this very much goes in line with where we started this morning about how we act and interact with, with people. We ought to do it humbly and graciously for the sake of them and for the sake of the gospel. Now, I trust that, that many of you have heard this verse at some point in your life in the context of meals when you're on the mission field, right? So you go on a mission trip, short-term mission trip, or what, whatever the case is, and somebody quotes this verse, inevitably. How many of you have experienced that? Okay. Not as many as I thought. But nonetheless, I have, I have heard it a number of times on mission trips that, hey, we need to eat whatever is put in front of us. My mom may have used it about her potato soup that was terrible. I mean, it, it just... I love my mom. If she was here, she'd admit, like she has admitted to me, that she's sorry that she made me eat that. But nonetheless, okay, ultimately it was from the Lord. And in, in most cases, at least in the things that I have been a part of, the, the context of a meal on a missions trip is not at all the same as meat sacrificed to idols. But the idea is... It's, you, you don't want to demean anyone's hospitality. You, you don't want to say, oh no, I don't know what that is, and I'm not touching that, all right? That's, that, that comes off as quite rude, and, and so you don't want to demean them. For us here in America, it could look like a lot of different things. Um, most of them probably won't raise questions of, of conscience about our ability to faithfully follow after Christ, all right? So he's telling them, you don't need to do this anymore. However, look at verses 28, 29, and 30. This is what he does say to this. He says, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? because of something I thank God for, all right? So Paul is, is answering their questions here uh, about, okay, what, what should happen if, if we get invited, and he's anticipating other circumstances and, and situations that might arise inside of that. And in doing so, he's taking the example of, okay, if you go to a meal and there's someone else there, um, probably he's thinking a fellow believer who looks at this and says, you know, this meat has been sacrificed to an idol, but even if it's an unbeliever who maybe has a strong opinion about this and, and says, wait, you shouldn't be eating this. this. This food has been sacrificed to an idol. He says, don't do it. And ultimately, he says, if they're becoming nervous about this, 
He's saying, while you engage with these unbelievers, do, do not go into certain acts. Refrain from it. Hold back from doing certain things that would harm someone else's ability ultimately to understand the gospel. You don't want to violate their conscience. You want to look out for them. So if another believer were to speak up and share concern about that meat, Paul said they should refrain from eating. If they did eat, what it would do is it would either ignore that person and their concerns, or it would ultimately make them feel pressured to engage in that as well. And then even though they would not feel comfortable doing it, they all of a sudden feel that they have to. Now again, this, this is something that, that we consider um, the, you know, irrelevant in our culture today, um, but there certainly are things like this that are culturally relevant, uh, some inside of the church, even here in America. It just looks different. Most churches then, like it was one big gathering in this city, we have so many individual churches that have already decided, okay, this is how we're going to handle this topic and this topic, and we pick churches based on who we agree with and how they interpret the word. But across churches, there are a lot of different opinions about a lot of different things, and we need to be careful about that. The, the church that I grew up in, um, in order to become a member in that church, you had to agree to abstain from alcohol or any form of tobacco use, okay? While other churches are, are just fine with that, and, and they have, you know, cigars and wine in their staff meetings, I don't know. Um, so we, if you're wondering why we have a policy about cigars, it's Pastor Mike kept setting the smoke alarm off in his office. It's like, dude, just... Go outside, you, you know? But nonetheless, that's the sort of church that I grew up in, okay? And I know that that's not the same across all churches. But the point is, I love you, Mike. Um, even with these topics that we, we disagree on among believers and how it should be handled, as you think about this, like in, in the church that I grew up in, it was handled very differently than it is in this church. And yet, in the last few months, I won't name their names, okay, but I have had two pastor friends of mine recommend two different types of drinks to me, okay? And I look at where I grew up from and I say, that, that's not good there. And I was, I was uncomfortable as I considered what they were saying, okay, because that's not what I grew up with, and there's a history behind that. And I know that, that many of you are uncomfortable with that sort of thing, and many of you are not whatsoever. Well, in Paul's example here, if, if we take that particular issue of, of alcohol or drinking or what, whatever it is, and one of you were to have some form of social gathering, have drinks available, everyone would be free to partake. But if somebody said to me, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. I would be much more apt to make sure that I abstain from it so that they didn't feel uncomfortable as well, so that they didn't feel like they were the only ones or that they were you know, odd for this or whatever the case was. That's the picture that Paul's painting. That's what he's trying to communicate to them. He's saying if there is someone there who, who feels this way, then don't partake 
for their sake. They don't need to be pressured into this. And so Paul is communicating this. Use your freedom and use it to engage people. Go and engage people while you're there and recognize all of the individuals in this setting and use your freedom wisely. He did say in verses 29 and 30, and this is the place where there has to be a balance then. He said, your freedom and your conscience should not be determined or judged ultimately by other people. It ought to be focused on Christ. So, Though God's people ought to be gracious, we ought to be sympathetic, though we, we ought to keep in mind um, what other people feel and we ought to be hospitable to those who disagree with us on certain topics, we do not need to change our beliefs or feel guilty because of what we believe on these certain topics if it is in line with what we feel the scriptures are saying. We ought to be focused on pleasing the Lord. That ought to be our goal. And so indeed, really the judgment of the Lord ought to be more important to us than the judgment of other people. And I know that that's hard for a lot of people. We put a lot of weight into what other people think of us. But the truth is, we ought to be putting more weight in what God says to us than we do about what other people have to say about us. That's with this topic, that's with every topic. We ought to care more about what he's saying. And Paul concludes this discussion with a statement that really should help us in far more than just this topic. He said in verse 31 through verse 1 of chapter 11, this is what he says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or in the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul's instruction to those who were uh, seeking to honor Christ was to do everything, do everything for the glory of God. That's the key point of this whole passage. For you kids who are, are keeping notes, this and the next one, this is what is really important. This is where this whole discussion comes to a head. We're currently doing a systematic theology study in our high school and middle school ministries. If you don't know me, I'm the high school, middle school pastor here. And inside of that, we have looked at creation and why did God create specifically, uh, why did God create us, mankind? And it's for this. It's for his glory. It's to, to bring him glory. This is what all of us should be about. And so for Paul, in regard to this topic of, of food sacrifice to idols, but really more so how to interact with other people who ultimately disagree with you, this meant bringing glory to God meant that you care for other people, that you love other people. This is what we've been seeing all throughout this passage so far, this recap. They were worried about their personal freedoms, what they could or maybe couldn't do, and Paul points them to the glory of God and the well-being of others. Specifically, he instructed them, do not cause other people to stumble, which again meant they shouldn't put people in a position 
position where they felt extremely guilty or uncomfortable eating or not eating. They didn't need to burden people with their own conscience, causing them pressure one way or the other. And likewise, they knew how some people felt, so it meant just being aware of that and abstaining when you're in those situations. And so Paul made clear for those inside or outside the church that you do this so that the gospel can spread. Verse 33, so that they might be saved. That's why we do those things, to bring glory to God and and to see others built up in Christ and ultimately come to know Christ. And he concluded in verse 1 of chapter 11 by urging them to follow his example as he followed the example of Christ. Clearly, Paul was living this out in the way that he acted and interacted um, with other people. And he is looking at them and saying, look, take note of what I'm doing and make sure that you're doing it in the same way. Don't make issue over every trivial thing. Don't die on every hill, ultimately. So this meant they needed to care for those around them. They needed to care for the the feelings of other people. That was the example that he was setting before them. And if you look at Paul's life, since he became a believer, that's exactly what he did the whole time. For the last three chapters, and, and really for a few to come, Paul has been addressing topics that the church in Corinth was struggling with personally and that they were disagreeing on corporately. And and they were topics um, that that they were trying to understand how they ought to use their freedoms in Christ to navigate. And however complex we seek to make spiritual things, it's interesting that the solution to these questions and these disagreements came down really to two simple things. To love God and to bring glory to God and to love others and to care for their needs. That's what he's calling them to. If you're familiar with Christ and his ministry, you know that he was asked at one point, what is the greatest command in all of Scripture? And he responded to that by saying this, And this is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. He said, The greatest command is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, that you love others as yourself. And he went on to say, And if you do those two things, you will fulfill every command that God has ever given through the law and through the prophets. If we love God and we love other people. It seems as though no matter what the topic is that's up for discussion, however we look at and view different things, it really comes down to these two things, that we focus on loving God, that we focus on loving others. And when we do those things, we will please the Lord in every way. We will care for other people, whether we agree or disagree. That's what we'll do. This is so very simple, and yet... It's so very hard to do. So let's pray for God's help right now. Would you join me in prayer?
Heavenly Father, we, we confess that a lot of times we do very much look out for our own needs and we think about what we want and how we view things and we get so sidetracked with our own desires uh, that we often don't look out for the needs of others and we don't look out for what you desire. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would awaken us to that that you would help us to see each of us individually, that we would not try to, to fix it in everyone around us, but we would fix it in ourselves, that, that we ourselves would look at our lives and say, what do I need to do to love you more and to love those around me? Lord, help us to focus on your glory. Help us to be about who, who you want us to be, and uh, Lord, help us to see things as you do. Uh, no matter what the topic is. We, we pray, God, for your help in this because we are weak and uh, we are prone uh, to, to be focused on ourselves. And so, Lord, uh, we just pray for your strength and, and your wisdom and your courage to address these things in our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.